Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome back to ETFs for beginners, where we drive fast cars, eat fast food, and love our slow-cooked ETFs. There's a co-host, and her name is Anna. Christina. Hello, Anna. How are you? Hi, Phil. I, I always laugh at your intros. <laughs> well, I'm happy for it. That's why I write them for that. So tell us about our guest today. Our guest today is Natasha Eschman, better known as Tash Invests. Tash is a 24-year-old with a net worth of 215 k and she works as a disability support worker and is living proof that you don't have to work in finance to be good with money. Welcome, Tash. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Phil and Anna. It's great to have you here. So I'd love to kick off from the beginning and hear your story. Like not a lot of 18-year-olds are thinking about money and investing. And what inspired you at such a young age to get that part of your life together? It just felt like something I had to do. I was lucky to have parents who were super open about personal finance. And I wanted to travel when I was really young. So in order to do that, I had to have a job and then save and then travel, I guess. Then I was like, what's the next step from there, I guess? Um, my parents were always very property investors, so shares just kind of seemed like the answer. No, that sounds great. And that's very similar kind of to how I came across saving for travel. What are your, some of your first memories from your parents who kind of told you about money and saving and investing? They've just always spoken about it. Like they always openly talked about job offers and why we were moving because we moved countries a lot when I was younger. Um, if we wanted a holiday, we would budget for it as a family and we'd have like one of those lazy Susans on the table with the different names and the numbers on it. And we'd spin it and discuss like pros and cons of different things. I remember wanting Foxtel because all my friends had Foxtel. And dad was like, well, we can't have holidays and Foxtel. So just like those open conversations all the time around money, I guess. The budget was actually written on the Lazy Susan, was it? On like the like little post-it notes and we'd spin it and talk about it, like make it a game. Wow. My family used a Ouija board. Oh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was your first ETF? I believe it was IVV. Is that an international fund? Yeah, yeah. Well, now I think it's domiciled in Australia. But yeah, it was um, an SP500 ETF. And why that one? Why was it that was the one that um, you were attracted to in the first instance? It was just like whenever you Google anything, it's all American-based knowledge, I guess, or the US-based stuff. So I was like, okay, I need the S&P 500. How do I buy that? And that was just one that popped up all the time as being like a good ETF, I guess. Was that the research that you did ahead of time or was it from your family's influence as well? Well, my family, they don't really buy shares. It's kind of a bit of both. Like dad was like, ETFs are good because I didn't know what they were initially. And then kind of just Googling, which one should I buy? And then so much S&P 500 comes up and you Google which ETF to buy. And you said that you originally bought it on the US stock market because I guess there's just more information about US investing. Is that kind of how that started out? Yeah, well, I didn't know enough to know that there were different options, I guess. I didn't realize there was like Australian versus American ones. And I was like, okay, this works. I'll buy it on ANZE trade or whatever it was back then. How was it um, opening up your first brokerage account? Was it intimidating at all? Confusing, especially like E-Trade is not very user-friendly in the same way that something like Perler is. It's very like all the market limit orders and the different stuff that pops up. It's definitely interesting. And then getting to know like all the what is it, computer share and investor center as well and like all the mail you get from just buying one share is very interesting. 
Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, when you start to do that and you think, oh, this is very simple. You've just pressed a button and you've uh, bought something, but then the paperwork arrives. What was the learning process for you like going through all of that? Yeah, I didn't fully understand it for a while. I just registered, put my uh, tax file number against it and was like, okay, I'll hope for the best, I guess. Like, what can go wrong now? And it's worked out fine. So, Tash, a lot from what I gather is you're the type of person who wants to learn, just tries things, sees what works and what doesn't. For someone who's kind of new to investing, what are some of the approaches that you think that they should consider? Just starting. I feel like we all overthink this so much. Investing is a lot simpler when you kind of strap it down. So just starting really small, like finding that one ETF, opening a brokerage account, like just starting really small. Because I think we can all sit here and overthink everything that we do all the time, especially for stuff like this. So realizing that you are going to overanalyze it and just starting. Yeah, Phil and I talk about that quite a bit as well. Just if you just start with one thing, how you learn along the way, right? Instead of getting overwhelmed by all of the different brokerage options or different ETF options, just starting with one is just such an easy way to learn. So completely agree with that. And over time, how has your approach to investing or money changed? It's probably gotten more hands-off and automated. Like initially, I was checking things every day. I loved going through my spending every day. I loved being really hands-on with it while I learned. But now it kind of just works in the background nicely. I've got all my systems set up, like my investments happen automatically. So something changed to be more like easier and more streamlined. So you're saying that it's more hands-off now, but in the beginning you were much more hands-on. Was that also with savings as well? Like you said, you were looking at your budgets as well. So can you just walk me through that process as well? Yeah. So I tried all the different fund spending trackers and Excel spreadsheets and I would track everything that I spent and write it down in a little notebook as well. I had very set limits for everything, especially when I was at uni and I was working like lower paying and lower hours as well. I wanted to save every dollar that I could. And that was very, very frugal for a little bit. Now I've kind of learned how to be less frugal and like enjoy life at the time as well. So I kind of went through this cycle where I'd be really, really, really cheap and then go overseas, but then budget travel for ages. And it was just all about like saving the most money. And then I kind of got older and I was like, okay, I should pay the $30 for a flight instead of getting a 12 hour overnight bus for $6. And I started making those compromises. Because a lot of people can be extreme in the financial independence movement. And so you found a bit more of a balance in that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, yeah, COVID helped a lot as well, not being able to travel because it kind of broke that cycle of like, I have to go away and I have to go to the next place and I have to see as much as possible. And then being like, no, it's fine to slow down and spend money and see Australia as well. And many people seem to think that it's a binary choice. Lots of young people want to travel, but many people see it as being a binary choice, being either to budget and save or traveling. And you've been able to do both. Yeah, well, I guess like you have to save to travel. So why not save for other things as well if you can make it work and like traveling to cheaper destinations and like budgeting while you travel? Because I had a lot of friends who would save, but then as soon as they went on holiday, they'd be like, okay, I'm going to spend whatever I want because I'm on holiday now. But kind of keeping that mindset throughout the whole thing makes it a bit easier. I once went on a trip with a friend to Greece and she blew all her money in like the first two days. And it blows my mind because you're able to save and then you just blow it all. And and so having that balance between saving and knowing how to use it, because some of the things that you talked about earlier was even around value, right? Before doing that really long trip for 12 hours, now you're willing to pay the extra $30 to maybe have a more direct flight. That's very similar to my experience as well. So the frugality and the budgeting kind of happens first. But then the second step, which is something I learned much later in my life and wish I had learned earlier was that investing side, which we talked about as well. So taking that leap from budgeting and saving to investing, growing wealth, increasing your salary and so forth. So how do you kind of tackle that second part? What are some of the considerations that you've made with your own money journey? 
So considerations for investing in general is always like risk profile and how much risk you want to take on and learning around that helps to make it a lot easier as well. So I feel like I have a generally higher risk tolerance than some other people might. So investing in shares is good for me. But yeah, just like finding something that matches your lifestyle. Like initially I didn't want to buy a property because I didn't want to be tied down to something like that. And shares are a lot more liquid in theory and they pay dividends more regularly. And like, that's all great. It's kind of how I picked on that initially. So let's talk about the property market. I know you own a, a property. How did you get into the property market, especially with prices being so high and the challenges around that? I bought like right at the first COVID lockdown. I was very lucky. There wasn't really any competition and everyone was quite nervous. So no one was really making offers on the apartment I was at either. So it worked out really well for me. It was just like a little bit harder to get a loan because it was right when all the banks were starting to crack down on casual employment um, as everyone was losing their jobs. But because I worked in support work, we were working overtime pretty much and our jobs were very secure. So it just was really good timing for me. And Perth is a lot cheaper. My apartment was 295000 which you just don't see in Melbourne or Sydney. That'd be a big part of it though, is considering other markets to invest in as well, rather than um, where you actually live, because so many people live in Sydney and Melbourne and we, <laughs> we know what prices are like here. Yeah, definitely. So many people don't consider it. I have so many people message saying like, oh, you're so lucky you lived in Perth. And it's like, yeah, it is, but like anyone can buy in Perth and like the rental returns are great. Like anyone can invest there. So I believe, Tash, that you learnt a lot from listening to podcasts. What were those podcasts and what were the kind of things that um, were light bulb moments for you? Um, so mainly it was all like my millennial money and the Australian finance podcast was a big one as well. I think it was just like consolidating it over and over again, hearing it from multiple different sources and realizing it all boils down to the same theory, I guess, like spend less than you earn and invest the rest. There's so many paths to take, but it doesn't really matter which one you take. And everyone has different opinions as well, like hearing Owen versus Glenn and even like Victoria Devine in there as well. They all have different opinions on things, but it all works out in the same kind of way. So it's really convergent, is it? The, the, the thoughts and the ideas and the methodologies all just converge onto simple strategies. Yeah, we just hear the same stuff repeated over and over again. And you're like, okay, I can do this because everyone's saying the same thing. And you mentioned risk profile. Uh, a lot of young people automatically, when they're looking at their account in superannuation and they see, you know, there's a conservative option, there's an aggressive option, but without even thinking about it, they will often tick conservative without realizing that they actually have the rest of their lives for their money to accumulate. What are kind of the things that you look at when determining a risk profile? Well, definitely time. Like I'm quite young, so I've got ages for the market to recover, like looking at the market history as well and knowing that I could make it through a huge market downturn. But other things as well is like, what other goals do you have? Do you want to buy a property? Are you going to have to sell your shares for that? How stable is your job? How stable do you want your job to be? Are you planning on having kids and traveling? Or are you planning on having a stable job for a little while? But the super one's really interesting because a lot of people, I think, don't even realize super is invested. They kind of remove it from investing as a completely separate topic. That's very true. I often hear, and I'm sure both of you hear, you often hear that investing is like gambling, but then people don't consider that so much of their their wealth is also being put into their super. So it is really interesting when people start actually thinking about super as their investment, start tracking super in their net worth, start actually thinking about what is in my super, because that's also an added piece that I think people need to consider, but often don't. It's so much easier to look at your bank account and think about what I'm going to invest in for the first time without actually going and looking at your super and being like, what am I actually already invested in? So um, that shift is an interesting one for sure. 
It holds so much more weight. Like if you're looking at a super and you've already got 10, 20 grand in it, it's huge compared to if you're looking at your account and you're going to put $10 into Raise. Like that leap is just so big for so many people compared to something like Raise or Spaceship. And it can be so impactful, right? Like if you just get a default fund that you're in or a conservative one, that can actually impact your returns over your, you know, 20, 40 period of investing. So I think it's definitely a, a really big one. Yeah, for sure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What attracted you to TikTok and Instagram for your preferred channels? The whole reason I started social media is because I couldn't find Australian-specific information really when I first started out. There were so many American influencers talking about like like my wealth diary was awesome and she was sharing all of her numbers and all of her investments. So I was like, cool, I'll start an Australian version and see what happens. They were just the platforms I used myself the most, so I knew them the best. That's why I started on those. So what was your first video? It was like how I bought my apartment. And that did really well on TikTok. I got like 20,000 views straight away, which for someone with no followers was quite exciting. And then the ones about like actual investments did really well in terms of like talking about an ETF or talking about compound interest does really well because some people don't believe that compound interest is real. That's a fun one to talk about. On Instagram, it was just like my expenses for the week or my apartment expenses that month. And people quite like that content. What do you think the financial landscape looks like for young people who have got no experience in it and... I mean, they're not going to be getting the glossy brochures from fund managers or they might be seeing ads on their Instagram feed from financial institutions. And it can be intimidating, can't it, for a lot of young people? Of any age, actually. Of any age, it can be intimidating. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. You see like bus ads with brokers on there and you watch the news and you see all the red stuff and then you hear of financial advisors either ripping people off or charging five grand. So finding who to trust and where to get proper information from is really hard, especially with all the crypto scammers out at the moment as well. Everyone's just worried everywhere, I guess. So it is, it's really challenging. I think it's also challenging in that space because social media sometimes gets a bad rep, right? But you can get your education and information from anywhere, whether it's podcasts or books or so forth. And I know for myself, I do all of the above. And similarly to you, Tash, when you were saying, oh, these people were saying the same thing, right? Like live below your means, invest the rest, and everything else is about picking that strategy. So I think it's really interesting how you can get the same messages from different places, whether it's podcasting or or books, but also social media is just a huge component of learning and education. I know I follow a lot of, for example, news outlets and get so much information on there. It's just another medium, right? So I'm not surprised to see so many people learning from a space like that. But then to your point, there's also a lot of scammers out there. There's also a lot of, you know, debt products that can be quite, quite scary. So how, how do you filter between those? Like, what are some of the things that you think about I think social media is also really important just to normalize people who invest, like not to educate completely, but to just show that it's something that we can all learn about and it is accessible for people who like don't have a finance degree, I guess. 
In terms of navigating scammers, I think it's just fact-checking everything that you see, I guess, that you're going to follow. Like when I first started, I would hear it somewhere and then I would Google it and then I would research it a bit more to make sure like other people were saying the same thing, I guess. So I think just really like double-checking whatever you read and not just believing the first person you see on social media. Like are they qualified? Do they kind of know what they're talking about? Can you find the information on something like Money Smart, which is ASIC's website as well? But yes, it can definitely be overwhelming. I love that idea of normalizing as well, right? Like that is so, so important because when I was growing up, people really didn't talk about money. You didn't talk about your salary. You didn't talk about how much savings you had. You absolutely didn't talk about investing. So just normalizing those things is a huge part of financial literacy. Do you find that it's more normalized within your group of friends? I guess you're in a unique situation because you're already talking about it, but how do you find that? Yeah, I've always spoken about it anyway and I was always the person people would come to to ask questions for different things which is why I was happy to talk about it but the initial reaction was quite interesting when everyone was like why would you tell people that like why would you post that online like the rest of your life is going to be ruined and it was like why why is there so much stigma around talking about it um so now like everyone in my in my social circles discuss it all really like openly but definitely like an interesting interesting leap I guess what about net worth updates? I know that that's a very kind of private piece of information that you do share as well. What's the feedback that you get from that? Mostly it's positive. Most people really like it. Like when I follow people from the US, I really enjoyed that kind of content because it's very like nosy, I guess. But some people are either like don't believe it or want to like argue against it or think it's like a bit vain to share it as well. And they're like, what's the point of this? So it's interesting taking on like all the feedback like that. But in general, it gets people interested in finances and they want to learn about it and they want to learn like what makes up the net worth, I guess. So I think it's overall has a benefit. There's always been that idea that uh, in America, they applaud success. But in Australia, we have a bit of a tall poppy syndrome. Have you noticed anything about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially being like a female in this space as well, because I worked in healthcare beforehand and I studied occupational therapy, which is like 90% females. And then coming into a space like this where, yeah, it's still very, very sexist and there's still like gender roles and gender beliefs in here as well. So definitely an interesting learning curve. It's incredible to think about that, especially considering about that um, ever widening demographic of women over the age of 55 who are becoming homeless. I mean, it's so important that this message gets out to everyone. Yeah. And the more you look into it, like you've got the super gap and you've got the whole issue with like parental leave and all of that as well. And it just all compounds so much more than we've ever realized, like that I've ever taken note of, I guess, because my family's always been like, you can do whatever you want. We'll support you. It's fine. Like my mom works full time and everything. But being able to see it with this many people, I guess, has been yeah, interesting. Sorry, this is a question without notice. But what about approaching the discussion about money in a relationship? Have you got any thoughts on that? Be as open as possible, I guess. Like no hiding stuff. You just talk to everyone about it. Like the same as with my friends, I guess. In general, like not something I have to worry about, I guess, but making sure you have your own money and you have a safety net and you kind of have separate things and you have shared goals and you know where you both are headed and how that works. But I just think being open about it from the start is really important. I think having that open and transparent conversation with your partner is so crucial, right? You just want to make sure your values are aligned. You want to make sure that your goals are aligned. You want to make sure that the future is aligned, right? So um, that's absolutely important. It blows my mind when people don't know how much their partner makes. Yeah, and not like, I don't know, like kind of being annoyed at each other and not having those like that shared understanding as well. I guess there's so many like messages of like, how do I deal with this? And like, my boyfriend spends too much on this and what are we doing? And it's like, but you just have to discuss it and decide and like have that understanding as well, like separate your money in a way that works for you. And understand each other's values, right? Because um, I might want to spend money on X and my partner might want to spend money on something else and being like, how do we create a space where you can still do the things you want to do, right? Yeah, yeah. 
looking forward, what's in the works for Tesh? Yeah, big question. We'll see. I'm going back to the snow this year, which will be very fun. Going to work at a hotel again and just enjoy the last snow season, I guess. And then I'm not sure. We'll see where I want to move after that. Maybe going back to Perth. I have to finish uni at some point. I've had a nice break because of COVID. But yeah, we'll see. Tash, by dabbling in finance in your social life, is that something that you would want to pursue as a career as well? Or is that just like a side hobby and slash passion that you love doing? It's definitely more on the side. I don't think I would ever work like directly in finance. Like I kind of like doing marketing on the side and like being involved in it. But I don't think I find as much value as I do working directly with people in like a healthcare setting. Um, like it's been really lovely helping so many people on such a big scale, but I don't find that there's as much of an impact as like working one-on-one with someone that I can feel, I guess. So I love finance and I love talking about it, but I think I'll always have like a different job on the side. And I think that's so important as well, right? Because so many people think that finance, you need to like work in finance to understand finance. And it's really not the case. Like you're an example of that. Someone who's young, who's self-educated in that space, who has the support system to kind of learn about it, but also doesn't have to focus on it as their career or job. Yeah. If you're just going to buy and hold ETFs, don't list to be really advicey, but it's not that hard or time consuming once you've learned it and set it up. Like I don't really look at it that much anymore. I think that's like a big like myth around investing is you have to be checking it every day and you have to have your traders charts up and it's going to consume your whole life. But it doesn't just buy and hold. And like with Pella, you can set and forget as well. It's great. It's as easy as online shopping, right? It's easier. If you can buy something online, you can buy an ETF, you're fine. (laughs) Online shopping is way harder. I have to look through all these pages of clothes and just gets overwhelming. This is way easier. And then you get ads for the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently I get ETF ads in the same way. That'd be great. Right? (laughs) Oh, I get them all the time. (laughs) Really? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. That's incredible. I think think someone's listening to my phone and what I'm saying, you know, it's it's just incredible the things that come up. Yeah, definitely. And if anyone wants to find out more about you, where can they go? Just Tasha Vest on TikTok and Instagram. Come say hi. Beautiful. Tash, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks a lot. Bye, Tash. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend. It may help them and help us keep going with the show. Also, don't forget to rate us. ETFs for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not ETFs for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.